You're listening to audio from Citizens Church in Birmingham, Alabama. If you'd like to learn more about Citizens, you can visit our website at citizensbhm.com. So as we're reading this section of the Gospel of Luke, kind of starting in Luke 1 and all the way to Luke 9, there is one question that's everywhere and it's on everyone's lips. And once you see it, you kind of can't unsee it. And the question is this, who is Jesus? Look at all these folks. Luke 4.22, the hometown crowd. They said, hey, isn't this Joseph's son? Hey, we, we know his dad, but this is getting crazy. He's like healing people and saying stuff. Then we got the scribes and the Pharisees. They say, who is this who speaks blasphemies? They're offended that this guy is speaking like he's God. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Who is he? Luke 7, 19, John the Baptist's disciples, they've been sent. John's in prison. His disciples are sent. And they say, hey, Jesus, are you the one to come or, or, or should we look for another? John the Baptist is called the greatest man to ever live as a follower of God. And even him and his folks are kind of confused. Who exactly is Jesus? Luke 7, 49, the folks at dinner, they're like eyeball to eyeball with Jesus. And they're asking among themselves, who is this? Who even forgives sins? Luke 8, 25, the disciples on the lake, there's a terrible storm. They're afraid, but they also marvel, saying to one another, who then is this? That he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him. And these are Jesus's guys. The disciples who've been kind of rolling around with them day after day, and finally they see him control the wind and the rain, and they go, well, all righty, who is this guy? And then Luke 9, 9, it's the government. Herod, a local ruler, he says, John, I beheaded. He killed that John the Baptist from a couple chapters earlier. But who is this whom I hear such things? And he sought to see him. There is no one who's ignoring this anymore. Something is happening in Israel and Judea and Samaria and Galilee, something that people are talking about. And when they encounter him, they leave kind of with more questions than before. That they're so amazed and maybe in fear and maybe marveling that everyone, the rich, the poor, the religious, the unreligious, the government, his own followers, his own family, people are confused. There's a commotion. There is a suspicion in some, but for others, Hope is starting to burn deep down. Is he, is he the one? Is he, is he really the one that's going to change everything? Because this questioning shows the historical reality of what it would be like to be around Jesus. This just air of just there's something going on and we don't really have a handle on it. But it also serves as a question to us. That who is Jesus? And how you answer that question is the most important question in the history of the world. It will define everything for your life. Who is Jesus is the question that the passage is asking to us and that every human will have to answer. And it will change everything about us. And we see that Jesus looks at his disciples and asks them that very question in verse 18. It says, now it happened that he was praying alone. The disciples were with him and Jesus asked them, who do the crowd say I am? And they answered, some say John the Baptist. They think maybe John the Baptist is back from the dead in some bizarro way. Others say Elijah. 
who was predicted in the Old Testament that there would be kind of a second coming of this Elijah figure. His ministry would be again in some way. Others, that one of the prophets of old is risen. There's prophecies that one like Moses would arise or something like that. People are looking to the Old Testament for answers and they don't really know what it is. And then he said to him, but who do you say I am? And Peter, the kind of leader of the disciples that kind of gets it right as much as he gets it wrong. That's kind of his pattern, kind of right foot, left foot, all the way through the gospel stories. Peter answered, the Christ of God. And Peter answers this correctly. Christ of God. In Christ, we, we hear it all the time. It's, it's become a strange cuss word in our culture in many ways when people are saying it. But Christ means Messiah. And Messiah means, in Hebrew, uh, the anointed one. And the anointed in the Old Testament means kind of what we think it might mean. It literally means touched with oil, prayed for, dedicated, set apart for the purposes of God. Take it even further, that everything anointed is kind of this link between heaven and earth, or heaven and earth going down, or earth and heaven back up. It's kind of these things that under God's direction are anointed to be these sort of bridges throughout the Old Testament. The tabernacle is anointed. The temple itself is anointed. The priests are anointed. Israel's kings anointed. Certain places become anointed. And these anointed things, their connection and how it all works, it's all pretty murky and shaky. It's all over the place, a little bit throughout the Old Testament. But there's this idea that anointed things are touching both heaven and earth in a way. So when Peter calls Jesus not just some anointed person, but the Christ, he's saying, Jesus, I believe you're the Messiah long foretold throughout the Old Testament. I believe all the biggest prophecies are coming true in you. And if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, it's written over thousands of years by centuries and centuries of Jews putting together one cohesive story that one day God will come and redeem his people. So for Jesus to, for Peter to say this about Jesus means he's saying, I think you are God. And here's when it gets very interesting. There are four gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in this part of the gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all say the exact same thing, dialogue for dialogue, scene for scene. Not the exact same wording, but the same sequence. Jesus asks this question. Peter says he's the Christ. Jesus then predicts his death and resurrection. Then Jesus instructs that everyone who follows them, it means the cross, self-denial to follow Jesus at great personal risk. Then a few days passed. Peter, John, and James, this kind of community group of Jesus, they head up on the mountain to pray, but on the mountain, Jesus transfigures. They come down the mountain, and a father is troubled by his sick and demon-possessed son. The disciples can't help, and then Jesus makes a second prediction of death. Quite a sequence, and he keeps it in that order. And Luke's gospel kind of links it with little phrases. After this many days, they do this. The next day, they come down the mountain. And that's something that Luke doesn't often do. He wants to make it stand out that this is one long unfolding thought, giving you the answer, the who is Jesus. And this passage together is giving us the definitive answer. 
that Jesus isn't some holy man. He's not another prophet of the Old Testament. He's not like a guy who's gotten the closest to God. No, no. Jesus is God. Full stop. That Jesus is God needs no qualification. That he is the one of the one. He is God, even though his story contains twists that you wouldn't expect. That Jesus is God, even though his story will contain twists that the religious folks wouldn't expect, that the irreligious folks wouldn't expect, that the rich wouldn't expect, that the poor wouldn't expect, that the authorities won't expect, that the disciples don't even get. That the twists are so big that every time Jesus affirms that I'm God, he has to remind them there's a cross coming and it's going to go poorly. Because in their minds, how could that be? If God's finally here, how's he gonna die? And that's what the passage is dealing with. And take a look. They go up on the mountain. It's like Jesus' little community group. And Jesus prays and something unexpected happens. There's no like ramp up like, hey, disciples, you want to see something? Come to the mountain. They just head on up. In verse 29, and Jesus was praying and the appearance of his face was altered and his clothes became dazzlingly white. Jesus is not transforming here. Transforming has the idea that someone or something is acting on an object and like making it different. That's how transfiguration is different. This isn't like a, a spotlight at a theater on the main character. No, no, no. This is like an atomic refrigerator in the middle of the night opening and the glow comes out times a billion. His face changes. His clothes start burning a white hot like the sun has appeared on the mountain. There is nothing comparable to it, except maybe in visions of the Old Testament, but this is no vision. This isn't a dream sequence like other anointed times. This isn't an obscure moment of rushing wind or just a cloud. This is God in the flesh, but now shining as the deity the divine, that he truly is. And Jesus is dazzling. And a way to think about it, this is kind of the first time. It's the true anointed one. The window of heaven opens. This is what's always true. And humans are seeing it for the first time of like, oh, it's not just a good guy. It's not just a guy who's close to God. It's not guy with a special power. It's not guy with a way with words. This is God, God. There ain't anyone coming next. He is the one. And the window of heaven opens and it blows anyone away. It's not a glimpse. It's not shaky. It's not mysterious. It's not a dream. It surpasses and shows that all those anointing things I mentioned were all pointing to this guy. They were all like little tiny previews at a movie. And now here's the movie. And this is what Jesus has always been. He is a dazzling furnace. Think of those sloth towers melting iron. There is a rage of intensity to Jesus that's just unlike anything else. I struggle to find a comparison because there isn't one. 
And Jesus is this final thing. And his words are coming true from just before. In Luke 9, 27, Jesus told him, I tell you truly, there's some standing here that will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God. This is the moment of the proper coming of the kingdom because the king is here in his glory that I am God and the reign that you've been hearing about and seeing glimpses of is starting. God is here. And Jesus has always fully, become, always fully been God. He was God before he was born. He doesn't become God here. He's always been God. He was born of a virgin Mary, and he took on flesh. He gained a body in his mother's womb and became this enfleshed person. That's what incarnation means. If you've heard that word, it's in carne. It's in the flesh. And from baby to now, Jesus has been fully God and been fully man. But for this brief moment, Jesus lets his divinity shine through. He's still fully man, but we experience the glory that is Jesus. And glory can be tough. That's a tough idea to kind of wrap your head around and really find some steering wheel for. And John Piper, you can't talk about glory and not talk about John Piper. It's in my contract. It's just a direct line. He's a longtime pastor and theologian in, in Minnesota who's maybe our most famous glory theologian. And he puts, God's glory is this. God's glory is the infinite worth of God gone public. It's the radiance of his holiness, the radiance of his manifold, his developing, unfolding self, infinitely worthy and valuable perfections. And the Hebrew word used for glory most often here is kavod. It's this heavy, weighty, momentum. It comes from words describing armor, that to be in God's presence, to really see him, is to feel a weighty powerness, like seeing an enormous skyscraper, seeing an Everest, or seeing a mountain, or seeing something that suddenly you feel rightfully small, not because you're a terrible person, but just because there's a sheer volume and power issue that you don't feel big. You don't feel super important. You see that God's not like us. And the kavod sets in that his glory is so big, his infinite love, his eternal untraceableness, his unsearchably great wisdom that brings us to a level of wonder and worship. Why does the band encourage you to worship with all your heart? Because hopefully we're here to worship that God. That we're inviting you to worship isn't because we think like you might like the songs or like it's cool. We're saying that God is this. So give your heart away. Give your soul away. Give your mind away. Let your body be loose. Don't let the weak beat you down. Just say, I don't know. Just hum, hum, ho. It's like, it's not hum, ho. Because there's an eternal fire of God burning forever of his pure holiness and sheer power and furious love for his people that we respond, and that's what worship is. It's not a sing-along, it's a response to God, training our hearts to what is true, but may not feel true Monday to Saturday. When we see the beauty of God in Jesus, that he is the tuning fork of the universe, he gives meaning. We live this temporary, quick, 
fast life. It doesn't feel that way as we slowly age, if we get the delight to slowly age, but our life is so temporary that only God's glory gives our life meaning. The deep, rich meaning to all of our relationships, that everything he says is animating the world and all of our decisions, that suddenly your life can matter in eternity if it concerns to God's glory. That your life doesn't have to be meaningless or just a series of random events. How unattractive is the atheistic view that life is just a chaotic mix of events and nothing matters and love's not real? It's just chemicals. Or is it? that it's not just chemicals. God made those chemicals. We don't have to disagree with dopamine or serotonin, all those things. Yeah, we just believe God made them. That God has orchestrated this beautiful human body in male and female form to say they are made in my image and they're made to reflect my glory by following me, by being obsessed with the dazzling Jesus that he is, that animates all of our life with meaning. And the question is answered as we see Jesus this way, that Jesus is God, seeing is believing. And in this moment where we see Jesus as Colossians 1 describes him, It's one of the highest and most beautiful passages you will find in the Bible, in the New Testament. Colossians 1 says this, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, including you. You are not created just by a father and a mother, but by the very hand of God. And you are made for him. Life makes less and maybe no sense without him. That you will never find your deepest purpose. You'll never find your deepest joy. You'll never find fulfillment apart from him. You'll just be a searcher. You'll be wandering forever unless you believe and know that you were created through him and for him, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Even while he's walking around like eating matzo bread, my guy's holding the universe together. How that works, I'm not privy to know. But we see he's not always like this because he doesn't use his godness on earth ever in his favor, only to help people only to help him understand because he wants to live a truly human life. So that when he comes to the sacrifice, he was fully human. Not human in some cheat codes, but fully human for us. Verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent, the first of first, for in him... All the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Do you realize in every miracle to interpret it correctly, in every teaching of Jesus to interpret it correctly, you must see the dazzling Jesus or you missed it? In every story, in everything he does, he's always the fullness of God, pleased to dwell. To to interpret Luke correctly, why are they all amazed? I could line up all the verses that say they marvel and amaze and marvel and amaze and astonish. It's because the dazzling Jesus is shining through all he does. That he's the interpretive key of everything. For him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile himself to all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. 
When we see Jesus, we see God made visible. Everything he says and everything he does, you can know that's God. Not God plus, not God light, but God himself. And he leads us, those who follow Jesus, as the church for all time and all places across all languages and all cultures. He's building this beautiful multi-ethnic bride, not lately, but always. Across all places, the global church is beautiful. The church in America is growing and multi-ethnic wonder is beautiful because it looks like what God is building. And that's what our king is doing. And he predicts his death in Luke 9 to also lead us as the first to resurrect from the dead. You will die, but if you are in Christ, you will resurrect from the dead to be with God forever. He's the firstborn of the dead. He leads us even in the scariest thing, death itself. And Jesus in the glory of his transfiguration is showing off this fullness of God. And it pairs this answer together. Who is Jesus? Well, he's the Christ of God with the reality the cross is coming. And the cross is necessary to fulfill his purpose. It's not enough just to know who he is. You got to know what he's doing. And it flows from who he is. God is the anointed one that's going to bridge heaven and earth, but he's going to do it by his blood. It won't be like the Brooklyn Bridge. It won't be steel. It won't be brick. But by the precious blood of Jesus, will link heaven and earth of forgiveness for all people, for all who believe that the very God of God was a man of man. And his manness, he dies on the cross a true death and true agony for us. And Jesus' glory teaches us about Jesus' supremacy as God. Verse 30, and behold, two men were talking with him. The community group expands. Moses and Elijah are here, who appear in glory and spoke of his departure, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. The CG gets some unexpected guests. Moses, long dead, thousands of years dead, is apparently very much alive before God. And he's here speaking with Jesus as a friend, as a subordinate to Jesus. And then Elijah, who the Bible says did not die, but was swept up to be with God. He is also here. And they're representing the law, which Moses wrote, and the prophets, which Elijah is the greatest of the prophets. They're representing all the Old Testament, showing that Jesus is not another one of them, but he is superior to them. He is supreme over them. And they're discussing with Jesus his departure. That God is both God, but he's also the way to God. His departure is the rescue that Moses and Elijah, they're discussing it, and I want you to see it in Greek. So the Bible is written in Greek, and the word departure looks like this. It even looks like it in Greek. It's the exodus. So he's sitting here discussing with Moses that your exodus is not the exodus. Your exodus was the preview to the exodus. 
that there's a moment coming, and they all know it and all agree. This isn't Jesus's like rogue idea. This is the plan of God from eternity past that Jesus is going to lead the exodus, the final exodus. Now, Moses's exodus delivered Israel from economic slavery, the evil of Pharaoh, to a freedom to be with God and specifically to worship and serve God. That's specifically the one nation Israel he rescues to do this. But Jesus is leading this greater and final exodus, what we call the gospel, and delivering not one nation, but all nations. From spiritual slavery to sin, that binds all humans. We think when we sin, we're using our freedom and the devil laughs and says, you're just committing to further slavery. You're adding chains on your life. Everyone thinks they're the master of sin as sin laughs at them and tells that sin masters us. Jesus is delivering the whole world from spiritual slavery, from the evil of the devil, his demons and death, to freedom with God and salvation itself and eternity to be with God, where we passionately worship and serve God, not just one day in heaven, but right now. That's what it means to be a follower. That we say all my affections, all of my life is for you, Lord. That I want to follow you because you're good. That I've tasted and seen and I know that you're good. And that Jesus is tying the Bible together for the disciples and us. It's like a zipper. He's zipping it up that suddenly all these parts of the Old Testament are coming true. And they're seeing Jesus for who he is. And that his purpose is this final exodus. And of all times, now the disciples wake up. Apparently, they were doing some sleeping. Now, sleep is used as a theme in the Bible, often in these kind of huge interactions of God. And what it's to do is to prove that God's the one leading and doing these interactions. That we pray to God, God listens to us, but we're not sorcerers. They're not like cooking it up with Jesus. Instead, God is moving, just like in the Old Testament, just like now, and he's moving, and they wake up, but the sequence is the very opposite of a dream. It's so real that Peter is just completely bamboozled. He's completely overwhelmed. Verse 32, Peter and those that were with him were heavy with sleep, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory, and the two men stood with him, and the men were parting from him, and Peter said to Jesus, Master, is it good, good we're here? Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah not knowing what he said. Some scholars think it's better to take that first statement as a question mark, which makes sense to me. That he woke up, looked around, is like, is it, is it good that I'm here? We have these folks. Gloria's ripping my face off in power. I, what if I went down a cliff and y'all kept going, or maybe I'll build a tent. And it, the scripture says he doesn't understand what he's even saying. It's nonsense. And you have to just imagine what it would like to be Peter, to wake up and go, how long was I out? Like, wow, got a lot going on here. Maybe I shouldn't have had that extra slice of pizza or matzo bread. Tough. But then a problem approaches. Something that you could just read over in a second would have been a show-stopping problem to the disciples. A God cloud is coming. 
verse 34. And as he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them. And they were afraid as they entered the cloud. And a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. And when the voice had spoken, they found Jesus alone. So a cloud accompanies the presence of God throughout the Old Testament. If you read the Exodus account, he leads them by this supernatural cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They build the tabernacle in Exodus 40. The God cloud like moves into it. In 1 Kings 8 under Solomon, they build the temple and the God cloud moves into it. And on Mount Sinai in Exodus, where Moses kind of receives the law and receives what it's going to be like to be in relationship with God, a cloud, storm, lightning, smoke, power, enormous God cloud sits on Mount Sinai for 40 days and everyone's terrified. Why are they terrified? Well, because this is a supernatural occurrence, but also they're told explicitly if they touch the mountain, they will die because they are not holy. And God just is. Explicitly, even Moses is told this in Exodus 33:20. God told Moses, you cannot see my face, my glory, for no one may see me and live expressly at the tabernacle in the temple. The only way anyone's getting close to the most holy places is through blood sacrifice, that things have to die to pay for sin, to get close to God. And even in that interaction with Moses, when he asks us his glory and God said, you can't see my glory or you will be dead. He hides him in the cleft of a rock, behind a rock. And Moses kind of just gets kind of near and sees the back of God. And so Peter, seeing a cloud descend, was not like, oh yeah, let's do it. He's thinking, we're all going to die. The Old Testament has come alive and a little too alive. We got Moses, we got Elijah, and here comes the cloud. This, This is a terrible interaction for him. And as the cloud comes, it's like any good aliens or fantasy movie where there's this moment that the characters have to step into the danger unknown. They don't know what will happen, but we will find out what's next. And what happens is the disciples don't, die. They also don't rush to make a sacrifice because the sacrifice they need to be with God, he's already standing there. And for the moment, he's still breathing. Jesus is God, but he's also the Exodus Lamb of God. Jesus is the Savior, He's going to lead us out, but he's also the sacrifice. This is the gospel, our exodus. Jesus is God, and Jesus is the way to God. Jesus, he is God, and his purpose, they're intertwined for us. And what God says in the cloud, it's an echo of what he said in Luke 3 at Jesus' baptism, the beginning of his ministry. We're kind of bookending these events as Jesus is about to turn his face and head towards Jerusalem and towards the cross. He says, this is my son, removing all doubt of his equality with God, my chosen one. And the idea here loaded in that phrase is anointed, beloved son in whom God takes pleasure in. 
See, Jesus isn't grasping at being God. He's not achieving to be God. He is fully approved and loved. He is God himself combined with this God, this Trinity, that they're one God and three persons. How all that works should just blow our minds. But it's happening. It's all right here. And God himself's affirming all this. And he's also affirming that he's pleased with the exodus, that this is the plan. And then God makes Jesus' authority clear to us that to listen to Jesus' words is to listen to the very voice of God in your life. When you read Jesus' words, it is the same as hearing directly from God to you. All of the Bible is God's words. But it is saying that Jesus' life and words are the key that unlocks all the mysteries of all the Bible. That all things ultimately fall in the interpretation of who Jesus is, what he has done, and what he has spoken is the final authority on all things. Interpreting everything in our life and everything in the Bible. And then, in a moment, it's just over. Kind of as quickly as it came, Suddenly, there's three guys and Jesus hanging out on a mountain. They're back to a very human-looking Jesus. And verse 37 unfolds. On the next day, apparently it was a pretty big mountain. They had to come on down. When they come down from the mountain, a great crowd met them. And behold, a man from the crowd cried out, Teacher, I beg you, look at my son, for he is my only child. And behold, a spirit, it seizes him. And suddenly he cries out and it convulses him. So he foams at the mouth and it shatters him. What a word. It's shattering my son, my only son. And he will hardly leave him. And I begged your disciples to cast it out. But they could not. What a flip of days. To quite literally kiss heaven and see the king on the mountain, be told to be silent, to walk back down, and to kind of enter the inglorious reality of life in a broken world with a desperate dad trying to hold on to a son he can't even keep in his arms. Some of y'all know that feeling and our children aren't demon-possessed. This is the world we know all too well, full of sick kids and hospitals like St. Jude's or downtown at Children's. A world full of pain and sorrows and disappointments. It's not like heaven. We see the disciples aren't supreme over all things like Jesus, not even close. They can't can't even handle it. They can't help the boy. The father weeps. And it's notable because Jesus has given them authority to do this. And that's how the chapter starts. Luke 9, 1 and 2, they say this. And Jesus called the 12 together, the disciples, and gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. They're not being asked to do something they can't do. They they can't do the thing they can do. Something's really wrong here. Past possession and illness are the wrong, but the disciples, their brokenness is exposed too. Verse 41, Jesus answers. This is his reply. O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you and bear with you? Bring your son here. And you can ask, who's Jesus talking about? Who's the faithless and twisted ones? And Jesus is saying, well, kind of everybody. Because in the Matthew and Mark accounts, there's a crowd and they're all fighting and arguing. They're not like helping the boy or the dad. They're just 
arguing about Jesus, arguing about this and that. The scribes and Pharisees are all involved. The crowd's faithless. They're not like on their knees begging God to heal this boy. They're kind of watching as spectators. The dad does the right thing in coming to Jesus, but in the Mark account, he actually asked Jesus, like, heal him if you can, which Jesus (laughs) kind of does the, he literally says back to him, if I can. (sighs) All things are possible for those who believe as he heals this boy and returns him to the father. The disciples have this authority, but the Matthew and Mark accounts make it clear that they don't have the necessary faith in God or prayer or prayer life to heal and drive away this demon which isn't saying that there's a magical steps to get someone healed, but instead showing that it looks like these disciples are more worried about arguing, more worried about their own embarrassment, more worried about their stature before people and missing the simple invitation. He just says, just pray, and it would have worked out. That somehow the disciples and all of their newfound authority and power don't even see the solution that, well, maybe we should pray if this is difficult or hard. Kind of the blanket good solution to any problem in life is, well, maybe we should seek God's help in prayer. We're not God. We're not supreme. Our faith is often absence. And the applause of men can't be trusted. Look how Jesus ends the sequence. Verse 43. And all were astonished at the majesty of God. They were astonished on the mountain, but only a few saw the mountain. But in this moment, the way he heals, this person who couldn't be healed, this person whose demon possession was so violent and illness so great that people weren't even praying, they instead broke out into fighting, Jesus heals him in a moment. But while they were still marveling at everything he was doing, Jesus said to the disciples, let these words sink into your ears. The Son of Man, that's a name for Jesus, is about to be delivered into the hands of men. But they did not understand the saying, and it was concealed from them so that they may not perceive it. And they were afraid to ask what he was saying. Amazed as everyone is in a moment, as enthusiastic for Jesus everyone was in the moment, Jesus quickly reminds them that they're going to kill me. He tells the disciples and us to let this sink in that the crowd is fickle, meaning we can be pretty fickle too. The disciples don't understand, partly because they don't want to understand. This is all very fearsome stuff, partly because it's not revealed to be understood. And we're left with this truly mountaintop experience. It doesn't get higher than seeing heaven and its king. And truly about the lowest, deepest valley to see the deep pain and brokenness of this family and to see disciples and crowds and basically everyone missing the point, missing Jesus, but then suddenly excited only to know the same people will be cheering on his crucifixion in a couple chapters. We're left to think about the sequence of these stories and what they mean to us. That Jesus is God but we are not. And in this way, that father-son story becomes a living parable to us. God is the father who loves his son too. But Jesus isn't sick, but we sure are. 
And in the plan and knowledge of God, he makes a choice to sacrifice his perfect, supreme, glorious son on the cross to save the sick, broken, sinful, trapped children of this world, you and I. Jesus switches places with the boy to save us. To forgive our sin, to make us whole, to bring us home. So that one day we will stand with the resurrected Jesus, just like Moses and Elijah as family. The bridge will work. That whoever follows Jesus will go to heaven and truthfully, eventually heaven will come to earth. That's the larger story. Transfiguration one day will be just Monday and Tuesday and every day in eternity. But first, this story has to hit the cross. Payment for our sins has to be satisfied to bring us to God. So who do you say Jesus is? It is the only question that will matter in eternity. And I bid you, church, guests, believe in this dazzling Jesus. Begin to worship and serve him with all of your heart, with all of your mind, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. Because he's God. And worship isn't about us. Service isn't about us. But it is about God. And it's beautiful to do because it's putting right what's true, that we are looking through the window into heaven and saying, oh, that's what I should live for even though sometimes all I can see is the brokenness of the valley. The painful twists of your story find their place in the twists of Jesus's story. Yet Jesus is still very much God, and he's a God you can trust with every part of your story.